following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Okay, I don't know about you guys, but I love to go into people's houses and to see their family verse up on the wall, right? You've seen that. You'll go in, you'll see Joshua 24, 15, as for me and my house... Will serve the Lord, or you might see Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Right? I think those are great. They give you a little flavor of what the home is really about. Well, we have a family verse too. Ours is Second uh, Peter one ten. And right now you're all going Peter two. What? What? Like what is that verse? Well, it's basically be diligent. To make your calling and election certain, right? Super spiritual, I know. It's pretty cool. It's actually my wife came up with that. It was her idea. Um, This came out of this idea that uh, every time we recreate, there was a significant chance she wasn't going to make it back alive. Okay, and I, I don't know where she got that from because I think it was our second date. I took her fishing on the Umpqua. I wanted to, you know, show her a good time. She loved to bass fish, and she's up on the bow of the boat fishing away, and I thought, you know, I'm a pretty suave guy. I'm going to dive out the back here, and I dive out the back, and I kick the boat out, and I dump my wife fully clothed into the Umpqua in, like, late May. And so I fish her out, you know, and she's all soggy wet, and I shake her off and dry her off, and, and that doesn't scare her away, which is a miracle in and of itself. So then she marries me, right? And we go on our honeymoon to Kauai. And I thought, oh, that's going to be amazing. So in Kauai, we end up on this adventure hiking back in the jungle. And we end up having to run out of the jungle through wild boar infested uh, areas being chased by locals with guns because we'd somehow stumbled into their hunting area. Right. But we made it out alive, which was pretty cool. And then we get home and I thought, okay, things are settling down. Let's go fishing in Port Orford. So we take the kayaks out to Port Orford. We're fishing. We come back in the afternoon. You come around the end of that. And if any of you have ever done that, there's this outbound wind that just blows really hard out in the afternoon. And so we're in the kayaks and we come around the end of the jetty and turn towards shore and hit that wind. And I lean in and start paddling. And what I don't know is my wife's hat has blown off. And when it blew off, she stopped paddling, grabbed at her head, turned around and looked over her shoulder. And in that amount of time, she had blown like 200 yards out to sea. And she's getting washed out to sea. And fortunately, my son was with us. So he paddles out there and he gets in front of her and kind of plows through the surf and the wind and gets her back to shore. So she survived that, which was good. And then just like three months ago, we're in Wenatchee and we're kayaking the Wenatchee River. And she actually ends up underneath her kayak on the bottom of the Wenatchee River, behind a log, for a pretty extended period of time. And that one was actually terrifying. The other ones I told her she was like way out of line, making much of nothing. But that was pretty scary. So I have no idea where this crazy notion is that she may die if we go on an adventure. That's just like the Sports Center highlight of the last six years of our life. My poor kids had to grow up in that experience. Dad's basic posture was, listen, I paid the money. I'm going to ride the ride, right? We're going to experience life at its fullest. Come on, kids. And we've had some pretty exciting adventures along the way. And to date, right, I have a 100% success rate. I have yet to lose anybody on one of our adventures, right? My wife is very quick to remind me that has more to do with the kindness of the Lord than any particular skill on my part. So anyway, suffice it to say, my wife's 
idea is, listen, if you are going to recreate with the Reeves, you better know where you stand with the Lord, right? Because it may matter before we get back. So all joking aside, my wife is actually quite wise. Scripture exhorts us in a number of places. Examine our lives. See if the eternal qualities and divine nature are evident in us so that we're confident in this faith we claim and we're fruitful in the life we lead. This morning I'm preaching from a text I've been working out in my own life. And and guys, I'm not preaching from a place of having this text figured out. I don't have this wired. Really, I'm preaching from the woodshed. The Lord in his kindness has taken me to the woodshed with this text. And he's just very gently teaching me to make this real in my life. But as I wrestle through making this real in my life, I realize the question of our text this morning is probably one of the most significant questions in all of Scripture. And I would argue that the answer to this question, because I think Scripture would argue that the answer to this question, at least in this life, may well reveal the veracity, the truth of whether or not you possess salvation at all. And if you do, the amount to which you're experiencing that and living in that today may reveal your disposition towards your salvation or even your understanding of it. So this is a pretty significant text. So here's the big idea I hope we see from our text this morning. Eternal life is more than living forever. It is. It's the fullness of life in union with God through Christ that goes on forever. And the degree to which we possess and experience that today in this life hangs heavily on one question. And that question is, what do you seek? So let's look at our text this morning. Stand with me, if you would, while we read John 1, 35 through 39. Church, I'll be reading and preaching from the NAS because it's familiar to me. Um, We stand, church, because we believe this to be the Word of God. And so we want to approach it as though God himself were speaking to us this morning. Verse 35, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What do you seek? He said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For It was about the tenth hour. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you this morning um, for the gathering of the saints. Lord, that your people come together, that we might see Jesus high and lifted up, and we might declare, as we declared in worship, worthy, worthy, worthy. Lord, you are worthy of all our praise. May we leave this morning declaring, my, my ears have heard of the Lord, but now I have seen. Lord, help us to see Jesus clearly lifted up this morning. And may it change us. May we live as a people who possess life today and reveal it to a lost world. Lord, that's my prayer, and I pray you do that through your spirit, because, Lord, you know the inadequacy of the speaker. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, you may be seated. John, uh, who wrote the gospel, is most certainly one of the two disciples in our story here. And he wrote his gospel some 50 years after Jesus had been crucified. 
And he wrote it like most author, most <laughs> he wrote it like most authors with a specific purpose in mind. And that purpose is really clear. As a matter of fact, he states it in chapter 20 of his gospel, verse 30 and 31. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Notice the last part of what John said, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's hope, indeed God's hope, is to not only lead us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, which means the Messiah, the promised Savior of man, and that he is the Son of God, meaning co-equal with God and divine in nature, but to produce the kind of belief that leads to life. Life. What does that mean? We read that term life or eternal life all over in Scripture. We talk about it as Christians. It's become a normal part of our American Christian language. What does it mean? At one point or another, all of us have heard or said, listen, this is the gospel. Ask Jesus into your heart, and then when you die, you'll go to heaven. You'll have eternal life. Although we may give some acknowledgement to the fact that salvation is an immediate and present experience, we somehow place eternal life down the road, right? In the sweet by and by, when I die, then I receive eternal life. Or I will live forever with God in heaven. Now, although these experiences are true, right? I don't want to downplay them. They're true. They're a, a real promise and a very real hope for those who have trusted in Christ. They are not at all what the New Testament authors are talking about when they say life or eternal life in the gospel. The original manuscripts of the New Testament were written in Greek. The Greeks had three different words for life. The first was bios, or we would pronounce it bios, right? It means I have breath, I'm alive, right? I have a pulse. Um, any, anyone who is upright and taking in nourishment would have bios, life. The second word is suke. Suke was different. Suke meant your soul life. It's the essence of who I am, right? Dan's soul or Jamie's soul or your soul. It's what God breathed into Adam at creation, suke. Every soul, your soul, will live forever. Every human has a soul. Every soul is eternal. Therefore, every human, in a sense, has an eternal life. The question isn't, will I live forever? The question is, what will be the substance of that life? Will it be lived in communion and union with God the Father through Christ in his presence forever, both here on earth and then one day in heaven for eternity, right? Or will it be absent or devoid 
of a communion and a union with God the Father. Away from his presence forever, both here on earth and one day in hell for eternity. And that's where we get to the third Greek word for life. And this is what you see in the New Testament most often. That word is zoe. Zoe is the word John is using when he says that believing you may have life, zoe, in his name. Well, what is that? What is that talking about? Zoe is about the substance or the quality of the life we have. Zoe is the fullest life, life that is truly life, fully alive in every faculty and fully alive spiritually. In other words, it is the life fully lived, fully engaged with God. In Scripture, a life characterized as Zoe would not only see their life through the divine lens, meaning I see life as God sees life, but it would seek to use that life primarily as a tool to bring God glory. That is Zoe. A life of Zoe thrives in the divine dance, which brings God's kingdom to bear in this life. Seeing each moment of their life as a moment played out in the theater of heaven to reveal God's glory and finds its greatest joy. This is important, church. And finds its greatest joy and satisfaction in the accomplishment of that. Guys, we have to ask the question, what do I find my greatest joy and satisfaction in? That's the word John employs. When we see the phrase eternal life in Scripture, it is always using zoe, and it's always speaking of a present quality and substance of life that carries on now through eternity. Church, this is so important. I'm not waiting to die to inherit eternal life. And in Scripture, that kind of life is always linked to God in Christ, imparted only to those who belong to Jesus. Christian, if you leave with one thing today, only one thing you take away, may it by God's grace be this. Life, Zoe, which is promised to the believer, is a life of purpose, passion, deep abiding fellowship with the Father, joy in my Savior, communion with Christ, the very life of Christ in me, and me treasuring and revealing that every moment of my life. The moment, and it's mine now, right? The moment I set Christ as Lord of my life and turn and by faith follow Him, I possess at that moment Zoe. We've all seen the new believer, right? And we go, man, that guy's on fire. What happens, church? Zoe happens, right? Where does that go? Do the cares of life crush that out? We do such a disservice to the gift God has given us when we boil it down to just living forever. Or when I die, I go to heaven. And church, the true gospel, the true gospel rightly understood will produce this type of life in his people. And it flows naturally out of seeing three things. One, my hopeless state. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. 
without God and without hope in the world. That is every one of our natural conditions. But God was not satisfied to leave me in that place. Amen? Amen! That's what I'm talking about. Christ's lavish ransom was paid to buy me back. I was not purchased back from death with perishable, unimportant things like silver or gold. I was purchased back with the precious blood of the spotless Lamb of God, the blood of Christ. And number three, the unfathomable gift, right? You cannot even wrap your mind around this. The gift of His life then implanted in me by the Spirit of God to give me new life. Zoe. It is this gift of life that then produces in God's people that type of life. That word zoe, it's employed over 30 times by John to drive this idea home. Listen to what Scripture declares to us. This is just from John's Gospel alone. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's speaking, of course, of Christ. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him is Zoe, life. And that Zoe is the light of men. What has come? How has Zoe come into this world and brought life and light to men? It came through Christ. John 10.10, this is Jesus speaking. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have what? Life, Zoe, and have it abundantly. Right? Not only does it come into the world through Christ, he came with the kind intention of giving this life to us. Unbelievable. John 14.6, Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the Zoe. No one comes to the Father but through me. Christ has come not only to bring Zoe into the world, not only to give it to his people, but he is the full substance of that life. And he's come to give himself to us. John 20, 31, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have Zoe in his name. As John recounts his time with Jesus 50 years later, he's deeply concerned that we get this. So it's all over the pages of his gospel. So this, to me, begs two questions, church. The first is, listen, he came that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing that, we may have life in his name. That means, is it possible to believe these two things and not have life? For the simple and sufficient answer to that, we need only go James 2.19. You can flip there if you want. It says, you believe that God is one. This is James speaking. In other words, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. One triune God. Their theology is fine. They believe that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but God himself. James says, you do well. Hard stop. The demons also believe and shudder. In other words, James is saying that a belief in a static set of truths, even the right truths about Jesus 
in and of itself is not the currency of heaven. It does not equate to Zoe. Life in communion with, consumed with the glory of, and going on for eternity in the presence of God. James says the demons' theology is fine. They believe the same things about Jesus, but they will never find eternal life. Well, church, if this is true, that brings a second question. What is a belief that results in that kind of life, in Zoe? And for that, finally, we've come full circle to my text. It took me a while, but we got there. Because remember, this is not only the purpose, it is the grand subject of John's gospel. This is why he wrote it, so that we might find life. You have to understand why John wrote what he wrote about Jesus, so that you might understand what he's trying to teach you. Let's read verse 35. It says, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now that word again at the beginning of 35 refers to something that had passed the day before. He's repeating an experience he and the disciples had had the day before. So for that, we go back to verse 29. And we see John the Baptist encounter with Jesus. And he makes this really earth-shaking declaration. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is making this really bold statement. Jesus is more. He is more than you perceive, more than you believe, more than any before or more than any since. As John records John the Baptist's words, he is driving a stake in the landscape of all of time and eternity to declare there is only one. There is only one who takes away the sin of the world. And it's Jesus. Amen? There is no other. There is no other way to be reconciled to a holy God except that your sin is laid on the sin bearer, the Lamb of God. And once for all, put away through the shedding of his blood in your place on the cross. That it no longer stands between you and a holy God. Amen? Amen. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then verse 34, John the Baptist makes another equally shocking statement. That's the first time this is said in John's gospel. John the Baptist says, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Not only the Lamb of God, more than that, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world is the very Son of God. Unequal standing with the Father, come down from heaven. You see, church, a belief that brings life believes on Jesus for who and what he is. And the two disciples hear this, and what? What happens? It says they followed Jesus. John declares, behold, the Lamb of God. But they have a choice. They can say, they can stay on the path they're on. They can look and say, yep, there goes Jesus. He's, well, he's kind of a big deal. Think of all those things that John said about him. But then just let him pass them on by.
You know, I think many who profess to be Christians have got a glimpse of the Lamb of God. They may have even believed he's kind of a big deal. But then they just let him pass them on by. But that's not their experience. The two disciples see Jesus go by and they begin to think, you know, John said he is the Lamb of God. John said he's unworthy to even untie his sandals. John said he's of higher rank than me. They must have believed what John had been telling them about Jesus. So what do they do? They let that belief move them. You see, I think too often we are unmoved when we gaze upon the Messiah. But they move, right? And they follow him. And you see, second point, a belief that brings life doesn't just believe on Jesus for all that he is, but it allows him to move him. It turns us to follow the Messiah, right? You must turn and align your course with Jesus. You see, to find life in Christ, you can't just give a mental assent to who he is. If you believe he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, and he is God himself, and you hope to find life in him, Zoe, you must adjust your course and in faith follow him. This is the context of the passage I read you in James. James is making this argument. You say you believe that you have a faith that will save you, but there has been no change of course in your life. On the contrary, I will show you the change of course in my life as an evidence that my belief has in it life. The question, my friend, is will I give Jesus full authority over my life and by faith simply and humbly follow him? Two disciples did. And you know what you see is their affection is kindled for the one who would save them. So that's the basic fundamentals of how you find a faith that brings life. But the next part of the passage is where I ran into something I'd not seen before. Jesus speaks. And what he says seems simple on the surface, but as you look at it more closely through the lens of Scripture, it is both profound and challenging. And church, this is the question I would ask you to listen to this morning. Jesus says to those would-be followers, what do you seek? Now, on the surface, that makes perfect sense. It's an obvious question. If I'm walking down the road and two guys I don't know start to follow me, I'm probably going to turn around and say, can I help you? Like, what do you need? But Jesus' language is slightly different. He asks, what do you seek? In other words, I see you coming after me. Why? What really are you looking for? You see, God is always interested in what's going on in the heart. Now, let's not forget, this is the God-man. He's not like you and I. He's not wondering at what's going on in their mind right then. He knows. 
That's why when the two disciples come up with this feeble response, well, we're just trying to see where you're staying. Jesus is like, come on, I'll show you. He very graciously brings them along. Now, parents of teenagers, you'll probably enjoy this. When my kids were teenagers, and I think my daughter's here this morning, I would tell them, listen, I will never ask you a question I don't already know the answer to. Right? If I ask you where you were last night, just assume I know. Right? If I ask you who you were with and what you were up to and when you got home, just come clean. Man, don't, don't try to make some excuse. Trust me, I know. Because I wanted them to think really hard before they answered me. Now, in some weird way, I was trying to help them experience what it is to be in relationship with God. You see, God always knows the answer to the question before he asks it. So why does Jesus ask? I mean, I think a lot like my kids, he wants us to think really hard before we answer. If God asks you a question, rest assured, that question is for your benefit, not for his. Remember, one of the two disciples here is John, the author. This is 50 years later, and as he looks back, still etched in his mind are the first words that the Savior said to him, What do you seek? Now, that question is interesting. It shows up in a number of places, in a number of formats through the New Testament. And we're going to look at a couple this morning. The first is when Jesus fed the 5,000. John records this in his gospel in chapter 6. Remember, Jesus has fed the multitude, a couple fishes and loaves, and bam, feeds 5,000 people. He cruises off across the Sea of Galilee. He's on the other side. The next day, the 5,000 are like, man, where did he go? They chase him down. They find him. Other side of Galilee. Verse 25 says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Do not work for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal zoe, life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Jesus didn't need to ask them why they were seeking them. He knew. You come after me for earthly things, to get your belly filled. Not because you saw the miraculous and believed that I was the Son of God. Not because you thought I held the keys to eternal life. But for ease and comfort, you seek me. Friends, the gospel is not some social program to improve our lives on earth. It is so much more. It is so much more than that. Jesus goes on to tell the crowds, this Zoe, this eternal life, this food which endures, is him. And he preaches such a hard passage on or message on feasting and being filled with and satisfied in him that the crowd misunderstands him. They take him to be this crazed cannibal, and like they split. It takes him like six verses to preach 5,000 down to 12. But the 12 remain. And Jesus turns to him and he says, you do not want to go away also, do you? Remember, Jesus never asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. And he asks it for their benefit. 
Peter declares, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of Zoe. Life, eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter declares, you alone have life that is truly life. We see you for who you are. Where else would we go? Essentially, what we seek is Zoe, and you are Zoe. We want you. And when he says this, he echoes another sentiment you'll hear from the Apostle Paul. You'll recognize this from Philippians 3.8. Paul says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Friends, when did the gospel become ask Jesus into your heart and when you die, you go to heaven? Does that sound like what these two men are talking about? Or is what they describe much fuller, much more complete, and much more present? The gospel offers so much more than just a good social program for life or even a distant hope. It is the life that is truly life lived in the fullness of God now. And it goes on for eternity. Church, where else would we go? Amen? Amen. Now you might also remember... Jesus met with another guy, this rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18. It says, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The young man said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And it says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, most of us read this as an indictment on the rich. Because Jesus says it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. But I would submit to you, if you stop at that, you miss a huge portion of what this text is about. Remember Jesus' question, what do you seek? This man came to Jesus seeking an answer. He said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Zoe. He's asking the right question. The problem is, he's asking it with conditions. I mean, he misses that Jesus is the Messiah because he relegates him to good teacher, and he misses that he needs his sin dealt with because he says, hey man, all these things I've kept since my youth, I'm pretty good. Now, I would call those two huge stumbling blocks to the gospel. But what's interesting, Jesus doesn't address any of either of those two points of unbelief when he talks to this young man. Remember, this is the God-man. He knows what's in the heart of man. So he bypasses the obvious and he goes to the heart of the issue and he says, one thing you still lack, 
sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. It's as though Jesus is saying, young man, you come to me with this request. I want to inherit Zoe, the life that is truly life. This is what I want. But son, I know what you seek. You want to add this, this Zoe, to your portfolio. You want all your earthly treasures and pursuits and pleasures, and you've saved a spot right over here where you're going to stick Zoe so that you have eternal life. Jesus says, your view is too small. I am the Christ, the Son of God. In me is the fullness of all life. I will not be added to your treasures as one among many. Go, empty yourself of your divided affections and come, follow me. The story is not an indictment on the rich, my friends. It is an indictment on those who would add Jesus to their myriad of treasures and pursuits and think somehow in that they have found eternal life. Church, I said when I started, I was preaching on this text because God is dealing with me on this text. When Dave asked if I would preach this summer, I'll be honest with you, here's the dialogue that went on in my head. Man, that's going to take a lot of time. And it's finally summer. There's a lot of stuff I wanted to do. I mean, after all, I'm 50. I don't know how many more good summers I have in me. Right? I want to, I want to take some motorcycle trips. I want to camp more than one weekend this summer for crying out loud. There are so many streams I haven't fished. If I commit to preach, look at all, I will have to give up. Church, to my shame, you see there is more than a little of that rich young ruler in me. Then I found myself in John 138, and I read this little phrase like Jesus is speaking directly to me. He says, Dan, what do you seek? And I know the right answer, right? I want my life poured out for the gospel. I want to live a life of purpose, serving and loving God. I want Zoe, right? I want to declare this good Savior who has laid hold of me. And the Lord gets really quiet. And he lets my words sort of hang in my ear for a minute. And then he says, except when you're busy or when the sun's out or when you see the shortness, the finiteness of your life. Every time except then, right? You see, God never asks a question he doesn't already know the answer to. And of course, I'm studying on this passage to teach it. On Thursday morning, that's the hardest part. And I'm chewing through the passage with a 19th century Scottish preacher named Alexander McLaren. I would not recommend it. It is very hard on you. When considering the Savior's question, he says to those who would profess to seek Jesus, first, the question suggests to us this. 
the need of having a clear consciousness of what is the object in life. The most of men have never answered that question. They live from hand to mouth, driven by circumstance, guided by accidents, impelled by unreflecting passions and desires, knowing what they want for a moment, but never having tried to shape the course of their lives into a consistent whole, so as to stand up before God in Christ when he puts that question to them, what seek ye? And to have an answer to the question. These incoherent, instinctive, unreflective lives that so many of you are living are ashamed to your manhood to say nothing more. God has made us for something else than that we should thus be the sport of circumstance. It is a disgrace to any of us that our lives should be like some little fishing boat with an unskillful or feeble hand at the tiller, yawing from one point of the compass to another and not keeping a straight and direct course. I pray you, dear brethren, to front this question. After all, and at the bottom, what is it that I am living for? Friends, I know, I know I possess Zoe. My life is hidden in Christ and his life is in me. I'm confident I possess that. I have, I have no misgivings about that. But man, I have to confess, it is so easy for me to sucker for some small, tiny kingdom of my own to pursue, to be like that small fishing vessel with an unskilled hand at the tiller, just bobbing through life, point to point, pursuing some inconsequential earthly treasure. Instead of living the zoe that is the substance of my eternal relationship with God, serving, declaring, treasuring this good king who has laid hold of me. So I had to repent with my Savior of my selfish idolatry and my tiny little kingdom. And I cast myself again upon my Savior. And I said, Lord, here am I. Send me. I'll do my best. Church, Jesus asks each one of us that question, what do you seek? Why do you suppose he asks? So I'll leave you with two thoughts to ponder. First one is, Christianity is not a body of knowledge and a set of rules. It just isn't. (laughs) But it's Zoe, the fullness of life, woven with Christ, engaged in kingdom life and love in every sphere of my life, in my marriage, with my children, at my workplace, when I recreate. My life full of life with Christ. Now that's the life that is truly life, and it's found only in Christ. You cannot find that outside of Christ. It does not exist within you alone. Your life must be hidden in Christ. Christ's life must live in you. You must have new life. You must be born again, Nicodemus, to find Zoe, professing Christian, Is that what you seek? Or are you just grinding it out every day, 
waiting to cash in your salvation token when you get to heaven. Waiting for eternal life to start when you die. My friend, if you find yourself there, you might do some soul searching. You might ask, do I really possess this Zoe, this eternal life at all? Or have I just made a mental ascent to a static body of truth that does not equate to Zoe, life in love with, seeking the glory of, and going on for eternity with God? Second thought, church, if indeed your dead soul has been awakened to life in Christ, if you can search your life and find the moment you glimpsed the Lamb of God and turned from your course to follow him, And my friend, the degree to which you are or are not experiencing Zoe, that kind of life, today engaged with God in Christ, is the degree to which your Savior is asking that question, what do you seek? You see, Zoe is not just a gift of life. It is a gift of relationship in that life. Remember, your life is hidden in Christ. It's sewn together with him. And as such, you and the Savior are one. Are you following him, pursuing him, seeking him, enjoying him, communing with him, abiding in him? If you are, praise God, right? Praise God. And I got to confess, I look out across here. I know a number of you. I know a number of you that live in that kind of life. When the people of the world meet you, there is a life that speaks the gospel. If you're living in that, praise God and take it everywhere you go. You are the light of life to a lost and dying generation. Take that life into that world. But friends, if you look and you say, man, I'm not living that life. I'm kind of grinding it out. I know I belong to the Lord, but man, I'm not experiencing this Zoe. And friends, perhaps, like me, you need to come before your Savior and just repent of your divided affections. Amen? Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We know that in it, Father, we have not only life, but the power to live that as we see the Spirit at work in us, we respond to the Spirit's prompting. And Father, I pray this morning as your word is preached that that your people, if they hear from the Spirit of God, would move. They would adjust their course and they would pursue Christ either for eternal life the first time or to live in that Zoe life that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for it. We thank you for that eternal gift that continues to sustain us each day. And we pray these things, Father, for your great glory. Lord, we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.